you are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, Heat Nation. I'm David Ramilla, credentialed reporter and the host of Locked On Heat, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts to get the latest episodes. The Eastern Conference Finals are set to begin in less than 24 hours, so to help me again preview the series against the Boston Celtics is a writer with GQ, a contributor to 538.com, and the co-host of the Open Floor Podcast. It's one of the best writers out there, Mr. Michael Pina. How are you, Michael? I'm doing great, David. How are you, man? I am doing very well. Uh, excited to cover the finals. It should be a really interesting series. And, uh, and also to talk basketball with you. It's been something we've been trying to do for a while. You wrote a phenomenal piece about Duncan Robinson for 538 a few weeks ago. Couldn't get you on the show. And you also written recently about Jimmy Butler, something we'll talk about a little bit later. And now you're, you know, you're, I think this is a four-time guest on the podcast. You are, this is some very exclusive company. I think along with Roan Carney of SI.com, you're the only other guest that we've had here as often as we have. So this is like, this is like the Paul Simon to Saturday Night Live as far as the number of times you've been a guest on the show. This was a tremendous honor until you compared me to Rohan, and now I just don't know how I feel about it. But okay. All right, gonna... let's make him Paul Simon. You're Tom Hanks. Is that better? <laughs> okay, that's much better, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he, he would probably uh, take umbrage to that comparison, but that's, you know, <laughs> I'll take that up with him at another time. Um, you know, it's the big series everyone we're talking about here, but – Looking at the Milwaukee series, what were your thoughts about the Heat going up against that matchup with Giannis Antetokounmpo and Milwaukee? And what do you think now that the series is over and Miami handled the Bucks pretty handily? Yeah, I mean, heading into that series, I I should say heading into like the bubble, um, even before there was uh, official seedings, I kind of just had an inkling that. Uh, a Miami would uh, be in a position to make the second round and match up against Milwaukee. So I knew that I, I figured that Miami would be one of the four or the five because we knew that Milwaukee would be the first seed. And I was just super high on the Heat and thought that that matchup would really um, was really leveraged in their favor for a variety of reasons. And when uh, Eric Spolstra just kind of put away the, uh, I guess, put away Myers Leonard um, and just kind of exclusively went with Bam at the five. I was even more emboldened by that, that, that pick. And, you know, I not, I can't just say that I uh, expected the series to go the way it did um, and transpired, but, you know, I just, there's a lot of, um, like one of the big angles here is just like criticizing uh, coach Bud and yeah. criticizing Milwaukee's inflexibility. Right. And I think that that is totally fair, but at the same time, like you want to give credit to uh, the Miami heat for exploiting that and for utilizing uh, all their pieces and maximizing and optimizing guys like Tyler hero. And, uh, and I mean, Jimmy obviously goes without saying, but Goran Dragic was just a total monster for segments of that series. And, uh, bam is bam. Uh, Jay Crowder shot the lights out and continues to just not miss in a heat uniform from behind the three point line. Um, which is, uh, something that is a little bit surprising. I would imagine if you are a Celtics fan and you have not watched Jay Crowder for a while, cause he was pretty up and down and streaky when he was with Boston, um, but yeah, 
just like to get back to it, you know, I just love uh, Miami's versatility in that matchup against Milwaukee. And it's just really like if you play the entire regular season and utilize it to, um, I guess, like flex different muscles and work on different areas of the game. And, uh, you know, they, the, the Miami Heat didn't use their zone at all in that series, but they did during the regular season more than any other team. And they just use these different uh, uh, strategies and schemes and you go up against a team like Milwaukee that has one style of play and that's what they do. And that really went against them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fair. I, I think it's interesting too, because you talk to Spolstra and you ask him questions about any kind of potential changes or things that start, or, or maybe making adjustments in series. And while he does them on the court, he's the first to mention that we just have to focus on doing what we do best. You know, he kind of reiterates the same things over and over in different ways, saying, oh, at this point in the season or the playoffs, everybody knows who everybody is, et cetera. Something to that effect. It's a very different iterations of the same kind of idea. And yet he did change things completely. He did take out Myers Leonard. He did reduce Kendrick Nunn's role to almost a non-existent one and, and installing – Goran Dragic as a starter was a huge boost for their offense. And I, I did not see that coming. I thought we would continue to see Goran coming off the bench, if nothing else, just because of his age, because of the possibility for injury. But it just seems to have made the, the focus on a title much more concrete because Dragic, not only has he been great on the court, but off the court, his, his personality and his experience in EuroLeague in a similar type setting has really paid dividends for the Heat. And, and it was just, it's been so interesting to see Spolstra make these kind of changes. And it kind of harkens to something that you wrote in your recent piece about Jimmy Butler, which was fantastic. And everybody sh- listening to this podcast should absolutely read. It's on GQ, or you can follow Michael as always for his great writing. But you wrote about Spolstra that he is the NBA's most accommodating and experimental coach. And I, I know in context of the piece that you were talking about how accommodating he is for Jimmy Butler and the fact that he's gotten Butler to kind of change his role, reduce it to, somewhat so that everybody else on the roster can thrive. But I wanted to talk about that a little bit, but also compare and contrast Spolstra to Brad Stevens, who I think is one of the big matchups that a lot of people are looking from the upcoming series against the Celtics. Yeah, I mean, just to start, I guess, to comment on the – uh, from the Jimmy Butler perspective, uh, I think that a lot of people, you know, heading into this season saw it as a match made in heaven culturally. Just yeah. Jimmy is a guy who works extremely hard and um, suffers no fools. And the Miami Heat, I mean, they're hard-nosed. They weigh their players. They uh, The expectation is just uh, physically fit at all times to be tough, to be gritty, um, and to make sacrifices. And so for Jimmy, I mean, what has just fascinated me, particularly in the bubble, is how Jimmy continues to, and all season long, has really just like allowed everybody else to flourish. And he's trusted his teammates, and he knows the work that they put in. And this goes back, I think, the obviously the, the biggest example is Bam Adebayo, and we talked about that in one of my previous 17 appearances on this podcast. But Bam is just like, there are, this goes back to Spo as well, um, putting him in positions where other coaches 
would not other teams would not after drafting him wouldn't even think to utilize him the way that the Miami Heat have and I mean it's just it's paid off dividends and you look at the way that this team gets their offense and hunts for baskets with so many dribble handoffs between Bam and Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson and and Bam can just flip around and and be a role man one of the more explosive role men in the entire league in a pinch with a pick and roll with Goran Dragic or Kendrick Nunn or Jimmy Butler and uh, he initiates offense from the elbows better than just about any big except Nikola Jokic. So yeah. like he watching him uh, kind of grow as fast as he has, has been just something that I, I think is almost exclusive to the Miami heat and the way that they go about player development. Um, all due respect to the Toronto Raptors, who I would also put in this, in this category with Nick nurse and how he just, how he operates and runs things. But like you have, like, I just, you know, I've been talking about this with a few people, but if you were to uh, switch Eric Spolstra and uh, Mike Budenholzer and just have Spolstra coach the Milwaukee Bucks and have uh, uh, Coach Bud coach the Miami Heat, I just, I don't see Duncan Robinson uh, making the strides he has to become one of the most uh, dangerous on the move three point shooters that we've really ever seen this season. I mean, right. just, he's been incredible. I don't think that Tyler hero would have a major role um, and be able to handle the ball as much as he has. And I mean, he's, he would, he's been an absolute killer. The fact that he is a rookie who's 20 years old doing the things he's doing is boggling my mind. And I for sure do not think that Bam Adebayo would have ever become an all-star and not just this season. I think like straight up ever become an all-star under coach, but, and I, I think that this is a little harsh, but I think it's also fair based on how uh, uh, coach Bud has coached his team. So, I mean, getting to, the second part of your question, which was kind of comparing um, Brad Stevens with uh, Eric Spolstra, that's like really difficult. And I, 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 I've always like struggled to really attach an identity to Brad Stevens. Um, I think that he does a really good job in a similar vein of finding a, a role that a, a player can excel in and putting him in a position to succeed. And that goes back to, like way back when he first took the job and, you know, Jordan Crawford was on the team and he put the ball in Jordan Crawford's hands or Evan Turner, uh, the year before Evan Turner got paid $70 billion by the Portland Trailblazers, he made Evan Turner the point guard when he was on the floor um, so that his gravity would not, or his inability to space the floor would not affect the offense. Uh, So he just does stuff like that. And that's been his reputation. And then also he has always prioritized, uh, defense. And if you can't defend, you're, there's a really good chance you're not going to play big minutes unless you're a superstar. So Cantor, look at looking at Ennis Cantor here. For sure. I mean, you look at the, the, it's so funny in game three against the Toronto Raptors, Ennis Cantor enters the series. Um, they attack him on at like four or five straight possessions and they must've averaged like 2.5 points per <laughs> possession. Just which is good in case you don't know. Yeah, pull up three after pull up three after pull up three. Um, and, I mean, the Celtics lost that game at the buzzer uh, by OG, an OG and an OB buzzer beater, really. And so, like, it's just the, the, that was like a, a a mistake that Brad made, and he, he thought that uh, Ennis Cantor would be able to attack the zone and the offensive glass a little bit better. But um, 
but yeah, defensively, like, I think that that has just been a tenant of the Celtics and like getting back in transition, uh, contesting three point shots. If you look at the Boston's numbers over the years, they've always been, uh, had some of the better three point defense, some of the better transition defense. And so, yeah, I mean, that's like a philosophy of his, um, that has paid off well and has been really smart. And then uh, I think the offense has, uh, you know, he's done a really, really interesting things with Kemba Walker that he didn't do with Kyrie Irving to accentuate the way that Kemba can kind of get buckets. And uh, so I just think like, you know, uh, both are two top five coaches in my mind. I, I, you know, we're splitting here hairs and comparing them, but they're both just so perfect for their teams and have done wonderful jobs for their organizations. That's pretty fair. I, I think most Heat fans probably want you to trash Brad Stevens, and I know that we were going to get that. <laughs> we were going to get that out of you. Like, I, I mean, I've been. I don't think I've been a Stevens defender because he doesn't. He doesn't need me to defend him. He's proven himself. But when the comparison takes place between Spolstra and I think Spolstra kind of tends to be undervalued, not by most people that actually know the league and cover it, but from maybe the outside media or, or just your common fan, because you dismiss what he was able to accomplish with either Dwayne Wade or, or LeBron James. And, and the fact that they have struggled somewhat over the last few seasons, not through any fault of his own, but that's, that's neither here nor there. I, I think they're both great coaches and, and we'll see, we'll see if they're both willing to make the kind of adjustments we expect them to, but that's something that we'll probably talk a little bit more in upcoming segments. I'm here with Michael Pina of GQ and 538.com and you're listening to to Locked on Heat. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite app to listen to podcasts and always get the latest episode by asking your smart device to play Locked on Heat when you get in your car to get your team every day. Here with Michael Pina. And Michael, you brought up his name before, and I kind of want to ask your perspective from a long-suffering Celtics fan. Jay Crowder has been phenomenal in Miami. And as you mentioned, has not missed a three-point shot in a Heat jersey. What was, what's different between his stint in Miami, as far as what you can tell, and where, you know, where he was just a few years ago alongside the Celtics? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think, like, I think Miami has used him in very similar ways. You know, he's a small ball for um, – He's pretty stout in terms of just, I, th- I think he's actually better. He has a reputation of being this like three and D guy who's really rangy and can move laterally really well. I don't, that's just like not Jay Crowder at all. I think he's so much better on the defensive end um, guarding uh, less mobile players who are maybe bigger than he is. So that's kind of the role that the, the Heat have, have, have placed him in for the most part. Um, and yeah, like his three point shooting just is a total game changer and he leads the heat right now in three point attempts per game over eight, uh, nailing 40% of them. I mean, that's just, it, it totally tilts, uh, the entire offense. Um, because when Jay Crowder is shooting, you know, 31% from the three point line and, and defenses are just kind of letting him go and, and leaving them open and kind of clogging up some of the other avenues of offense, you know, like Miami really loves to just like beat you with back cuts and pick and rolls and getting to the paint and all that. But uh, so like Jay's ability right now to space the floor, let alone make the shots is it, it, it it's like the world to the Miami heat offense. 
Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And we saw against Milwaukee that they were able to limit a lot of what Duncan Robinson could do, even to some extent, although he did have a huge game one and game three. I think Jimmy Butler was pretty quiet by and large, but one of the mm-hmm. big things in Miami's favor was how great Crowder was and consistently good. I mean, even Goran Dragic kind of tailed off towards the end of the semifinals, but Crowder was consistently good from outside. Of course, you got some big performances from Hero and others, but his offense, if you can if you can have somebody kind of limit those other players, it's always great to have this release valve from three-point land who's been shooting at almost 50%. I mean, considering how well he started, like there were just games there where he hit like his first three or four shots from behind the arc, and that's like – like you don't know what's going to happen from that point forward because I mean that's that's given Miami all the boost they really need to kind of build a cushion and from there they they trust their defense enough where they can yeah I think limit an, an opponent especially when they're as good at, at limiting a guy like Adetokounmpo and figuring out the rest of those players they know that they're not going to get burnt by a, Kurt, a Chris Middleton or or uh, a Lopez or anything like that so but it's a little different going up against the Boston series where you have so many other players that can step up obviously Jason Tatum. A, a superstar in his own right or a superstar incoming and he's been a phenomenal player all season long struggled somewhat with his offense perhaps but still a dangerous threat but the player that I'm most concerned with moving forward is Kemba Walker uh, mm-hmm. I was talking to John Corrales yesterday about this and, and he sees getting Walker going as a very uh, big step for Boston's chances of success what do you see Walker's role moving forward and, and what's the best way for Miami to limit what he can do because I, I, it's going to be a tough challenge. I don't know if you're going to start Jimmy Butler. I've seen some people kind of expect Butler to start off guarding Walker, but that seems mm-hmm. like that would take off. That would take a lot of him as energy defensively that where you kind of need him to be a super, or a guy who can step up in the fourth quarter offensively and get to the line and things of that sort. So I don't know if you just stick Goran Dragic on him. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that matchup. I, I agree with everything uh, John said um, about Kemba, you know, the Toronto Raptors, obviously, I mean, first of all, Boston's offense is very pick your poison. They have a lot of different options. Um, even more so if uh, Gordon Hayward comes back in this series and is effective and can play yeah. big minutes, but uh, the Toronto Raptors who have arguably the uh, smartest and most effective uh, one through eight, one through nine uh, defense in the entire NBA, like their whole thing was slowing down and, and neutralizing Kemba Walker as best they could. I mean, they went box one from the jump in game five, I think is when they first broke it out. Um, maybe even earlier in the series, I might be misremembering, uh, but that's just like super unusual and it was very effective and he struggled in the last few games. Um, and Conversely, like Kemba has had a lot of success in the in the matchups uh, against Miami this season, and Miami does not have a Kyle Lowry. They do not have a Fred Van Fleet. They do not have OG Ananobi or or Pascal Siakam. Or just like there are players on that team that uh, can be attacked, which I think Boston is going to exhale tremendously. So um, not having to. Uh, just, you know, there's just no, there was really no entry point into efficient offense against the Toronto Raptors. Whereas I think that they will, they will in spots, particularly in crunch time, if games are close, really go at uh, some of the other weaker defenders um, uh, on Miami. Um, But in particular, just looking at like the matchup, 
uh, I would be a little surprised, honestly, if you had or asked uh, Jimmy Butler to uh, chase around, chase Kemba around all the screens that he does both off the ball. And then, you know, I wrote this piece for 538 a few weeks ago, but one of the most effective offensive sequences in the whole league is when the Boston Celtics give Kemba uh, a stagger screen, Mm -hmm. a high stagger screen with two guys setting uh, picks for him. And so it kind of just like, I've always anticipated Miami, uh, switching that and trying to be as versatile as possible. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me to start possessions off with Jimmy on Kemba, um, particularly if they go to that action and then you got to switch it. So I don't know. I mean, Kendrick Nunn, if you just look at some of the data, Kendrick Nunn spent uh, more possessions on Kemba during the regular season. And we should preface all this by saying a lot of the regular season data is kaput because like, guys didn't play here and there uh, right. lineups didn't play at all zero minutes for both starting fives i think um so yeah miami played boston twice before the trade acquisition of crowder and iguodala so that changes everything and then in the bubble it Jimmy was didn't without play. yeah exactly yeah so take everything with a grain of salt um yeah. But they did go to they did have a little bit of success during the regular season with kemba and those screen actions against miami um and I just think that that'll be, that's like, I don't want to say that's the whole series because it's not, but that is going to be a humongous variable. Just how often Boston goes to that, uh, how Miami uh, defends it. We, you know, what's really interesting about Miami, which this is uh, semi-related, but um, they play, they, they, they led the NBA in uh, possessions per game uh, in a zone yeah. this season. And they have, uh, there have been uh, zero possessions in the playoffs uh, where they have used their zone, uh, yeah. according to Second Spectrum, which is just like, uh, I think that that is more matchup dependent than anything, um, but is still very fascinating to me. And they had a lot of success in a very small sample size with the zone against Boston um, during the regular season. So I think that we'll see that quite a bit. Um, but who knows? <laughs> like, I, I, you know, like I, I, if I was Brad Stevens or exposed to looking at the tape right now, it just, it's a bummer because there's not a lot to go on that really matters. Yeah, and look at just the changes to Miami's starting lineup. I mean, now you have Crowder who can switch on to so many different players. If you use that stagger screen, like who's gonna who is gonna be the screener? Would it be like a Tatum and a Tice maybe setting the screen for Kemba Walker and then having him kind of well, if that's the case, then you've got Bam probably on Tice, you've got Crowder on Tatum or Butler on Tatum. All those guys can switch, so that doesn't. There's no defense, like there's no seam, I think, for Walker to kind of exploit the way he did in the prior matchup. So I think that's going to be something that's kind of skews in Miami's favor is that now you have this much more versatile defensive lineup. And yes, Duncan can be targeted, but even still, at his size, I think he's not as bad a defender as a lot of people kind of expect. Like he gets picked on a lot, but he is also long and tall enough and we saw some plays even against milwaukee and certainly against indiana where his defense kind of came up big where he's able to at least break up passes or at least be a big enough body to not make things easier for for another player to get a shot off so i i don't think it's going to be as bad a matchup 
as you might expect. I, I don't know. I have, I do have concerns about Kemba Walker, but at the same time, I'm kind of walking a line here as to whether or not he's going to be so dangerous or he's going to be completely taken out of the play. But what, what about, what about Tatum then? I mean, obviously his struggles against Toronto were pretty well chronicled. What was it that Toronto did so well to kind of take him out of his offense? Yeah. I mean, they have, again, just terrific personnel. And so when you start possessions with Kyle Lowry on him and Fred Van Fleet, guys who you would think he'd be able to just destroy. Um, he was like bashful about using his handle against those guys. He was way more comfortable attacking OG Ananobi or Pascal Siakam or uh, anybody else. So any wings on Toronto, he was like golden um, guards, not so much. And one of the reasons why is uh, particularly in crunch time, which it felt like almost every game except game five went down to crunch time was, you know, the Celtics would get the matchup that they thought they wanted. They would get, they'd do a high screen with Kemba and Tatum and they'd get Fred Van Vliet on, uh, on Tatum in the center of the floor, like where you couldn't double him. And then everybody else would just be like in the paint. <laughs> and so it's like, if you're Tatum, you'd have to just read the defense. You have to kick out to the corners uh, you can't force too much. You can't get to the basket, which is where you want to go and draw fouls. Uh, and so it was the options were basically like shoot over the top of Van Fleet or Lowry, which you can do, you know, he could do in his sleep, but those aren't very efficient looks um, or move the ball around. And that's what he did. And so that's a little bit why I think he struggled particularly at the end of game six. Um, but yeah, so I think like just real quick going back also to that uh, stagger screen situation with, with Tatum. Um, well, I should say with Kemba, but when Tatum sets the screen, usually it forces a switch. So um, if you're Miami and you do switch and, and he does get a good clean, like let's say for example, Goran Dragic is the yeah. primary defender on, uh, on Kemba and you set right. that first screen and all of a sudden you switch it and Kemba has a, a high pick and roll with uh, Tice, let's say, is setting the second screen. And, oh, by the way, Goran Dragic is now guarding Jason Tatum. So he kicks it back to him, and then you have this great uh, advantage. So that's, like, why that sequence, um, even when Kemba doesn't score or anything, and if you just run it at the beginning in the first, like, five seconds of the shot clock, you get good offense out of it, um, which is why it's so effective. But – yeah, like Tatum, I thought that there were growing pains in that Toronto series for him as a scorer. Um, I also thought that he was like really brilliant in game seven for stretches. Um, and what's really great about him is he just never, he doesn't let his uh, missed shots affect the uh, other areas of his game. I mean, he's one of the, he's always one of the best, most versatile, most impactful defenders on the floor, regardless of who else is in the game. And that part of him and that part of like just his role in Boston is why they won that game seven. I mean, he was just so tremendous in, in using his length and contesting as many shots as possible. And his rebounding is phenomenal for someone his size and allows the Celtics to go be more comfortable when small as they were after Daniel Tice fouled out. Um, but yeah, no Tatum is great. Let me ask you a question, David. Um, who do you think is the best player in the series? Who do I think is the best player in the series? That's a, that's a tough one. Uh, 
I mean, I guess it would arguably be Tatum or Butler. And I think my tendency is to say Butler just because I think he's a little bit – what he lacks in the offense that Tatum certainly has, I think he makes up for. I mean, look, Tatum's a hell of a defender. I think Butler might be just a slight better. And his ability to get to the line and control the pace of the mm-hmm. offense and the game in general, I think I'd have to kind of tend to side towards Jimmy. That might just be some homerism on my part, I'll be honest with you. Do you have a differing opinion? I mean, I think this is just the same type of uh, splitting of the hairs situation yeah. we talked about with Stevens and Spolstra. Um, I love Jimmy so much. He's one of my like all-time favorite players. Yeah. Um, and Tatum is like basically my child. So I, it's really tough <laughs> to, to go against him and say someone else is better. But so I probably won't out loud, but I just respect both of them so much. And and great point by you to say that um, Jimmy Butler just has this masterful control of the game. He feeds guys who needs to get it, who need to get it going. Uh, he sets so many screens with Dragic and just like he rushes the 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 glass and um, and gets to the line basically better than everyone. I mean, like yeah. there's Harden and that's like it. So. When you have someone like that who uh, just is so uh, so patient and so intelligent about circumstances and what's happening in the game and time and score and all that, like Jimmy Butler is is tremendous, and it's really awesome to see him succeed right now. Yeah, I, I would say, and I've made this point before, so my listeners may be tired of hearing it, but I, I've I, I will gush about Butler whenever possible because watching him closely over this past season. What has really struck out to me is his ability to kind of see the game and perceive what's necessary, whether it's not, whether it's attacking on the offensive end early on and seeing if his shot is falling and seeing if he can make an instant contribution that way or kind of stepping back and saying, all right, no, I need to get Goron going. I need to get Bam going, et cetera, and finding the right matchup to exploit that will eventually lead to a win he plays like the long game not just over the course of a series but also the course of 48 minutes and he's as effective a player at doing so as I've ever seen other than perhaps LeBron James and I know that's probably hyperbolic but at the same time I I do think it's fair like from seeing LeBron during the big three era he was the only other player that would kind of like willingly lose a game one because it doesn't matter because after that point he trusts his talent and the talent of his teammates so much that he can kind of just turn it on. And we saw it even against the Rockets series, your, your pick to make the NBA finals. If I am not mistaken, uh, you know, they lost that game. To, one. You didn't need to bring that up. Come oh, on. Well, I mean, it's fair. It's fair. I mean, like I've never been particularly high on the Rockets, especially since they've gone small, but I, I mean, it's, I think you're in, in love with the idea of the Rockets and their, their, their changes and the experimentation and things of that sort, but it just didn't work out. And even to go back to that point, though, LeBron saw what was necessary in game one and said, nah, let's just change it up. And then from that point, just kind of blew them out of the water. So that was, that was really interesting. And I think Jimmy is certainly capable of that and certainly in a way that I don't think Tatum is just yet. No, that's all very fair, very well put. Um, and just to speak kindly of Jimmy for – another 30 seconds like what I really what I really love about him and tried to hit on the story I wrote about just him as this I mean I don't really do the the headlines but it was you know I think it was like calling him an anti-star or something like that and the the point there is just that I tried to imagine like if Kevin Durant was on this heat team instead of uh Jimmy Butler would they necessarily be a better team? And would Kevin Durant feel the need to average 
38 points a game is like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And coming into the situation, I wrote a piece about Jimmy and him being the only superstar or like free agent, all-star caliber player who decided not to team up with another star. And I just anticipated him being like, all right, I got to average like screw load management. I got to <laughs> average uh, 26, uh, seven and seven or five and five, 26, five and five, something like that um, every night. And I have to guard the opposing play, the opposing team's most threatening wing or most threatening scoring option every night. And I thought that that was going to be his mentality, honestly, and I couldn't have been more wrong. And that's, speaks to just how amazing he is temperamentally, uh, how misunderstood uh, he's always been or has been for the last like three years, I want to say. And I just don't think anybody else could have done the job. Anybody else as good as he is and as accomplished as he is could have done the job that he's done in this situation. No, that's, that's great. I'm glad you kind of bring that up because I mean, there were so many questions about him and I know one of our first conversations was prior to the season, kind of talking about Butler and, and your fantastic piece for, for, for vice on him, where you kind of saw him in his element and everything else. And uh, this season has been a joy to kind of see him in that locker room and work so well with everybody else and to kind of constantly talk up Bam at a bio as the team's best player to form this unlikely friendship with Goran Dragic where they're listening to country music and drinking beer and talking about soccer. I mean, this is, it's been phenomenal. It's been so much fun, but I, I don't know what to make of this series. I don't know what to expect. So I'm, I'm hoping that maybe you'll have a little bit more clarity on that. Is, is there a specific X factor aside from Walker or anybody else that you look at from the Boston side of things, or maybe even from the Miami side that could totally change the course of the series. Cause I, I guess on the surface, it's easy to say that Gordon Hayward, who we've seen practice and even as early as today, Brad Stevens said uh, he's doing some more work and is getting a little bit more comfortable. We don't know what his status is going to be for the series, but he could be a huge factor. What is there anything else other than Hayward? That's, that seems like the obvious one. I think, one of yeah Hayward for sure and uh will Brad Stevens uh play a Hayward Jalen Tatum Kemba Marcus lineup um mm. when when uh Miami goes super small as they are want to do with Iguodala at the four um and those three guards those lineups uh I think have been pretty successful so who takes Hayward in that and that's you mean who who, who, say, who takes uh, Adebayo yeah who takes Adebayo is it Hayward I mean, Marcus Smart is probably the answer, which is really funny. It is. Um, but I, you know, speaking of Bam, I think who Bam will defend is really interesting. And during the yeah. regular season, he spent the most possessions um, on Jalen Brown. Brown. Yeah. Right. And so I don't necessarily think that that's going to be the primary match. Maybe it will. Um, I think him, you know, them downsizing a little bit. Uh, changes that somewhat but you know Spolstra might start for all we know like he might start Kelly Olenek and match up with Kelly put Kelly on Daniel Tice, Tice and oh. it's just like I don't I, I honestly don't know I mean these guys are so smart and they aren't afraid to make decisions like that and that's why they're they're like super awesome great coaches uh, so that's like how they use BAM defensively is is something that I'm very 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 fascinated to see because I think if you're Miami, the number one thing 
that you feel you you feel very confident um, and hopeful at the same time is just Bam's ability to draw fouls when he doesn't even have the ball necessarily, and he's just kind of plowing in trying to get offensive rebounds. That's going to be very interesting to me. His aggression and his activity in those spots. Um, he's going to get Tyson in foul trouble pretty early on, I think, and that that kind of then he forced Stevens to go to his bench a little bit sooner than he'd like. And without Hayward available over the first couple of games, at least that's what we expect. Who who comes up? Is it Williams? Is it is it you know? I mean, I, I just I don't know. I, I mean, Shemmy Ojale. Is it Grant Williams? Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I think that that's just going to be very very interesting. And I mean, Bam always is just he's maybe the most fascinating player in the whole NBA for me when I just watch basketball. So even though. There's, you know, the data in a very small sample size suggests that Jalen had success um, in those matchups earlier this season with Bam on him. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's what they went to, if they just tried to neutralize Jalen as much as possible, or even put him on Tatum. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing to see. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, already expecting it to be a great series. The more I talk about it, the more I, I kind of study what's going to happen and uh, read about it, the more excited I get. Should I? Do, do you want to be put on the spot to make a prediction? I know a lot of people are kind of uh, opposed to that sort of idea, and we really don't know what to expect from the series given that these rotations have not played each other at any point. Do you want to make a prediction? Do you feel comfortable going on the line like that? Come on, dude. I, I, I picked the Rockets to win the championship three years in a row. I'm fearless over here. Um, <laughs> um, sure. I, my prediction is, uh, is Celtics in five. Wow. So yeah. despite talking them up for over <laughs> half an hour, it's like, oh, that's great. Spoh's a hell of a coach. Butler's a phenomenal player. I know, I love Bam Adebayo more than anybody other than Jason Tatum, but none of that matters. Can I, can I just like briefly explain that? Sure. So I have all the, everything I said, I stand by with Miami Heat, obviously. I have so much respect for them. I think they're tremendous. Um, when I look at the Celtics defense in particular, it is night and day against uh, or I should say versus what Miami faced in the second round yes. and even the first round against Indiana. Um, they are way more flexible, way more versatile, um, way more aggressive, way more physical. Um, maybe not more physical, but just their ability to do so many different things um, and mirror Miami's offense, I think, uh, is something that they have Miami has not had to deal with. I mean, Milwaukee in particular is just like drop coverage on every possession with no adjustment. Uh, that is not how the Celtics play at all. So some of the looks that uh, Miami had and, and enjoyed in round two just like will not exist. They will completely evaporate it. So that's kind of the fundamental tenet of why I'm so confident in Boston. All right. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but let's not forget you'd also pick the Rockets. So, let's, <laughs> no, let's I'm take, an idiot. Yeah, for sure. Take their prediction with a grain of salt. Uh, no, it, it's a valid point. I, I mean, even before the series, during Game Seven, I'm kind of tweeting out that I, I had concerns about the Boston matchup for all the points you just mentioned. There, there's no denying that this is a much tougher challenge, and a lot of people are saying, you know, especially Heat fans are saying, well, we just, we just took out the MVP and the number one seed. It's like, yeah, but this was a roster specifically built for that purpose. And I don't think that they are prepared as well to deal with the versatility that Boston offers. So there is going to be challenging. 
I actually went and said Heat and six. It could go either way. I saw a lot of the ESPN predictors saying it's going to be either a, a, a Miami or Boston win in either six or seven. So it seems like it's going to be a long series. So you might be off on that, but it's going to be fun. I think we can certainly agree to that, whether or not Miami or Boston wins, it should be a fun one. One last point. Do either team offer a challenge to, let's say, the Lakers likely coming out of the Western Conference in the finals? Huh. Um, I haven't thought too much about that. I think during the regular season, I can't speak to Miami's success against the Lakers. I'm pretty sure they – do they not have a lot of success, if I'm not? It was a close game at home uh, uh December I want to say December around around December at some point it was a big game and it was they the lost, first it was on national television I think yeah, it was lost. the first home game they lost was to an LA team and that's that was a big deal because it was LeBron James and right think, yeah. yeah so it was uh yeah it was that was a close one I can't recall now if they played them in Los Angeles actually no I'm sorry they did play them early on in the season and they kind of got beat pretty badly that was like after establishing themselves early on this was early when they still had justice winslow and they weren't quite sure what to do dion was stuck on the bench so that sure. again this is a very different team than the one we yeah. saw in october of last year yeah so look if miami beats boston and there's no injuries involved then i think like in my opinion miami is just like i would no one should want to play them at all i don't yeah. care who you are yeah um and the BAM, having BAM for AD just would be just tremendous theater. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd give Miami a shot. I, I think, like, I think Boston is just a hellacious team on both ends and championship caliber and can beat the Clippers, can beat the Lakers. Um, would get blown out by the Denver Nuggets, who are clearly just obviously coming out of the Western Conference right now. Um, that's the only other team that would just just run all over them but no I, I think that the the Celtics and the Heat for sure they could match up and make it a series uh against the Lakers or the Clippers yeah yeah that's fair okay well thanks so much as always Michael you've been a great guest and uh hopefully we can have you on again and you can get past Rowan as far as the number of guest appearances on this show. <laughs> so you don't ever have to draw that comparison again, but as always follow Michael online, make sure you check out all of his great work at GQ and at five thirty-eight for as long as this, I don't know how long you're going to be contributing there, but it's been great to see some of the pieces you've been writing there. And of course, always listen to Michael on the open floor podcast. It's a great show along with another friend of the program, Ben Golliver. And just a reminder that you can always reach me via email at lockdownheat at gmail.com or via Twitter using the hashtag AskLOHeat. I'm David Ramil. I'm signing off and thanking you, as always, for your support.